Hey, this is Dan Messick, and you're listening to Upstream, a Skeena Wild podcast. Upstream will explore the people, culture, science, and of course the salmon from all across the Skeena watershed. Northwest BC is filled with diverse voices, communities, and economies that rely on a healthy watershed. So we'll dive into the work being done every day on the ground to ensure our way of life and salmon have a future and that the Skeena stays wild. The Skeena is this magical place tucked into a corner of British Columbia that not too many think about or know about. Um, it's this hidden gem, I would say. And when you show up and you see this place, it really is really dramatic. It, it, it hits at your soul and it just kind of leaves you w- with this sense of the world's a much bigger place than I am. The Skeena to me is a place of beauty. It's a place of history. It's a place of culture. It's a place of food security. The Skeena region is wild. It's rugged, it's untamed, it's natural, it's amazing, it's awe-inspiring. The Babine River is basically at the end of the line. So before uh, the Babine River, the Babine River meets up with the Skeena for fish along the Skeena, we're at the end of the line. So this is where, you know, over 93% of the uh, Skeena sockeye salmon uh, come are born and then uh, return, spawn and die and start that cycle of life over again. You can't be in a bad mood when you're out in, the, in nature. I love the lakes, the rivers. It's just so teeming with life. Um, it's just a beautiful, healthy place to be. Where, where is the Skeena? It's like, it's, it's, it's this place to remember where it starts is, is so wild and untouched and there's no roads and there's no people and there's no communities. And you just like, you slowly, and I've, and I paddled, you know, some sections of the upper Skeena. And you just, as you meander down the river, you just slowly start seeing more and more evidence of people and communities. And you you have this, you just realize the richness of this place. Salmon contribute to the health of so many other things that within that system, within that network of the things that sustain us. Salmon was always like every day for us. And, uh, you know, at the time, everybody thought it was like a never ending source of food. And of course, economics itself were the coastal region as well as the interior but um, in later years we found out yeah it is an exhaustible resource that we didn't look after properly a lot of it through mismanagement overfishing not looking after the environment of the headwaters itself like the spawning beds and the travel routes that they have to come from the ocean to our territories here but we thought it was inexhaustible and unfortunately that was untrue if you don't look after the environment where they're raised um, how could you have anything returning? So, you know, that relies a lot, not only on government and industry, but also ourselves thinking at the time that this would be good forever. And unfortunately, it wasn't. 
Salmon are the lifeblood of the Skeena. These incredible finned elite athletes of the ocean swim thousands of kilometers just to return to whence they came, spawn, and die, supporting thousands of people and communities along the way. The Skeena is Canada's second largest salmon producing system and one of the world's last. There are five salmon species that spawn all over the Pacific rims on two continents and along hundreds of rivers. The Skeena is home to all five salmon species, and although they have been major challenges and pressures mounting against Skeena salmon over the last century, this is still a healthy watershed. Climate change is by far the most severe and uncontrollable threat to Skeena and Skeena salmon. Warming waters means less food, higher surface temperatures, and more regular drought conditions upriver. But as we'll hear in the episodes ahead, salmon are resilient creatures. They've lasted generations by adapting to various conditions, but will they adapt to this? For several millennia, salmon supported indigenous groups and nations all along the North Pacific coast. Salmon are the cornerstone of their communities and stories, and supported diets and ancient economies. When the first Europeans arrived, they were struck by the abundance of salmon and its importance. It has sustained life here for many generations. Its value to the economy and culture has lasted the ages, and by the early 20th century, salmon had become a major focus of the Northwest economy with dozens of canneries all along the coast and upriver. Today, we'll hear from El Gamha of the Gitwagolks tribe and Chief Neymox of the Wet'suwet'en. They both have a deep knowledge, history, and connection to the Skeena and salmon. That means Algamcha is my name. I come from a tribe known as the Gitwal Yachts, and I reside on Cane Island in a city that's called Prince Rupert. This is where I live. This is the traditional unceded territory of our tribes right here on Cane Island. And this is where I live, and this is what I recognize as my my traditional territory, which gives me great pride to know that I belong somewhere. I belong. Indeed. Murray, maybe tell me about your first experience, your first interaction with Skeena salmon. Salmon. Well, when I lived in the cannery, that, that is where I was raised, at Cashier Cannery. My dad was a shipwright there. And uh, the first thing I always, always remember is before the the opening of the salmon, and they used to fish five days a week. And uh, the beginning of the season, the very, very beginning, they used to have an opening where all the gillnetters would gather outside Cashier, and they had a preacher there. And uh, he'd be out there in the middle, then he'd be praying and bless the opening of the salmon season for, for everyone. And then they'd fire off a not a cannon, but something in the air to officially open the salmon season. And I was, I don't know how old I was, maybe six, seven years old, I remember that. And then being with my father, my father collected fish in the summer. And uh, what I remember when I was very, very young is they used to load, they called them scows. They had nowhere else to put all the salmon, but to put them all on the scows. Uh, the cannery couldn't, uh, had no place to store them. 
so they processed them, and it is like they had no, I don't know, they didn't have conservation in mind, I don't know, but when I look back and I, and I see that, and uh, how, how they, how they gillnet it, and um, there was, I don't know, there was a lot of, lot of salmon, or say sockeye, mostly sockeye. That is what I, I remember the very most. And, you know, at the time, what was what was the fishing industry like? Like, what do you remember, you know, once once they did that opening and everyone started, you know, what do you remember of the boats? What do you remember of the smells and the sounds at the at the cannery? Oh, you know, the interesting part is uh, when they there's two canneries below. No, three. There were Sunnyside, North Pacific and Inverness. And what they had in those days were uh, uh, East Hopes, and they had wet exhaust. That is what I remember so strongly. And they go right close to our float to try to stay away from the the currents out in the middle of the middle of the Skeena. And I hear them the, the uh, boats rolling over to the left, and the and the exhaust going underwater. And I hear boom, 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 boom. Then all of a sudden it disappears and comes back again. And uh, fishmen so close to the dock, waving at us, and they're barely going because you only gotta uh, have a, probably a six-horse um, East Hope gas engine in there, and the excitement in the air that uh, my mom's gonna go to work pretty soon, the fish are gonna come in, and and what I really remember are the different nations that came to the cannery. Uh, that is where I met a lot of my Gixan friends in this class, and the Chinese and the Japanese, and we were all one in that cannery. Always remember that six o'clock in the morning, that uh, Chinese foreman would go out to out on the dock, and he'd blow that whistle, steam whistle, for everybody to get up and start at eight o'clock. Quarter to seven, people wake up, have something to eat, get ready to go to work. That was the strongest um, uh, uh, recollection I have, and it was like that every morning. Cashier, it's the last cannery going, if you're going southward, down and going into the Skeena. That's where Cashier Cannery was. And in the Skeena itself, they had two more, two more canneries up there. No, no, three. They had Claxton, they had Carlisle, and they had Port Essington. I remember that. I remember as a child going up to with my dad on the weekend, load us on the, on on his packer, and we go visit relatives up in Port Essington. There are so many canneries along there, and Cashier was just one of them along the. They're right alongside the CN Rail is where they were, where, where it is. It's dilapidated now, but it, the remains are still there. The dock is rotting away. I was up, I was up at Essington uh, last summer, and yeah, there is just, you know, pilings are just left there. What do you remember, what do you remember of Port Essington? Port Essendon, I remember, is uh, my dad had relatives on there, and uh, 
what it is, and part of it was a reserve there. It's still there. And I asked for years, what does the name mean? They never, they, we never called it Port Essington. He called it Spuxuot. So I asked around, trying to find out about my language. What does it mean? Until I met a I met an old friend of mine, Alvin, Alvin Leask. I said, what does that mean? Spuxuot. And he told me that Kshuot, part of the name, is fall. That's one of the seasons, fall. And uh, what is the other part of it? Spuk. Spuxuot. It's called a fall settlement where we go there and uh, mostly before the canneries came, we'd go there, or not me, but the people from Kitsum Kalem come down and they do their fish, they do their food fish, they smoke there, they, they dry them and salt them and they did all that. I remember they had a community in, in Port Essington and uh, they had a community hall. I remember a wedding that my parents went to. I always remember that one wedding that I went to in in Port Essington. And uh, there was a little place around the corner. It wasn't part of the reserve, but it's a small little place where there's war, uh, docks there, uh, floats. And I was told they call it Fintown. Just Finnish people lived there. So I went there and looked. And sure enough, there's maybe three or four houses in there, and gill letters tied up there. And so there's a mixture of people that were in, in Port Essington as well. Since we're on the topic, I mean, tell me a little bit about, you know, your, your I, I wouldn't say career, but I'd say your um, involvement, interaction, experience with, with, you know, fishing salmon. You're on the coast, obviously a little bit different than, you know, up uh, upriver. So tell me a little bit about when you first started collecting, harvesting salmon uh, on your own. Uh, what, what, well, what I did when I was, uh, wasn't quite, old enough to get in the, in the industry. And by then, my, my father had moved to Port Ed and there was a ship right there. And I, I guess I was 15, and I'd go and walk all, walk all the way up there, and there's quite a hike from Port Edward to Cashier, and I'd hop on the packer so I could learn my way around and learn the species. What is a sockeye? What does it look like? How do you tell them apart? What is a, a pink salmon and a coho in the spring? And I'd hop, hop on a packer called the Norma W, and that was run by uh, Douglas Wells, called him Ducky Wells. And he was really good. It was fun to go out there and start getting involved in what I had to learn. I had to learn where the sandbars are so that one day I'm going to run a boat. I loved that life. And then uh, and, and, uh, when I grew a bit older, I became a deckhand. And I was actually hired on a packer where I'd go out to Dundas Island. And uh, I used to collect fish out there. And then one day the, the manager at Cashier said, when are you going to run your own boat? I said, as soon as you give me one. So anyway, I got a packer. I ran a packer for many, many years, and I'd collect in the Skeena River, and I'd collect fish up the Nash. And one of the interesting parts about preparing for the season to open, but we used to have to tow net racks down to Bernard Cove, 
which is down below uh, Hartley Bay, for the guys to rack their nets. And uh, and then we tow uh, net racks and that camp up to uh, Double Island. Double Island is right across from Kenkolith. And on that camp, they sold gas and oil and, and groceries. And uh, they had net racks there. And we have to tow it up there and anchor it out and tie it to the beach. And I thought that was so darn interesting that this old guy was teaching me what I needed to know in the fishing industry. So I did that all my life. And then when I ran my own boat uh, in the fall time, when it's fall fishing, we'd get on a bigger boat. All the guys that ran boats, we got on a bigger packer. And we collect fish down Johnson Straits. And I remember going down to Bellingham, Washington, to make a delivery of dog salmon down there. We'd never been there. And uh, we never had skipper's papers. We just figured it all out. We took out our charts, and we figured it out. I thought that was an awful lot of fun when we did that. Murray, what does this place mean to you? What does the Skeena mean to you? You mentioned places like Prince Rupert, Kinkolith, Lakwalams, Lilu Island, especially at a time when we're seeing a, a, a lots of wild places around the world being lost. Here, it's still relatively intact. But what is it about the Skeena, and what does it mean to you? When I was allowed to go out to the end of the dock, my father would take me out there, and you watch that river. And you see the abundance of life in it, not just fish. You know, you see uh, you see it running down, uh, coming down from the Skeena River and heading out. And there's one place by Lulu Island why we fought so hard. Flora banks. That is where the eelgrass grow. Now, before I even heard of scientists, Bobby Sankey told me, my father told me, never go across Flora Banks on a half tide. And uh, my friend Leonard Alex's father-in-law, he said, you see where we're going here right now? This is where the fish mature. This is where they get used to the, get used to the salt water. They come from the fresh water. So the, the Skeena River to me is, is not only flowing, flowing down to feed us, to sustain us, but all along that Skeena River, you have eagles, you have bears, and you have wolves, and the eagles, you know, and uh, I feel it. I could feel that Skeena. It's, it, it is a part of who my heart is. It's just part of who we are. If you like what you're hearing and want to hear more about the Skeena watershed, salmon, science, and how communities are working together to ensure a future for all the creatures that call the Skeena home, then download the Upstream podcast. Check us out at SkeenaWild.org or subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am uh, Chief Namox. I currently sit as the highest ranking chief of the Tai, the Beaver Clan of the Wet'suwet'en Nation. I am a hereditary chief. I am not an elected official. And the name that I carry is thousands of years old. And the duties of being a hereditary chief is you have to look after the environment, the people, and all food sources on the land. And we often say 
that what we do as hereditary chiefs is for the betterment of all. And that means not only humans, but all fish, animals, plants, air, land, all of it is enclosed within those duties. Actually, I was born in Prince Rupert, although I am a Wet'suwet'en hereditary chief. I was born in Prince Rupert, and my late father, after the Second World War, when he came back, he became a commercial fisherman. So in our summers, we were at North Pacific Cannery, and of course, in the winters, we were raised in Tulpa on the territory here. But my first interaction is from very first memory of being around salmon because of where I was raised and how we lived and our dependence on salmon. Well, the very fact that we depend on our salmon, it's a major food source for us, us being raised, particularly, like, you know, our family, we're always at our grandmother's, eh? we're always there listening to the stories, and everything relies on what comes from the land and the waters. Us being around the smokehouse and listening to the stories as we're assisting, you know, the parents, aunts and uncles, as they prepared the salmon for the winter, us just being together the stories that are tied to it, the importance of it, how not to abuse it, make sure there's always something left there for the future. And unfortunately, when it becomes an industrial thing, the limit is the money, and it's not the resource itself. And then salmon took a huge hit on that. It was poor management, and yet culturally, we rely on that. That's how our stories get shared, having the respect for the fish itself, making sure that there's enough to go to the spawning beds, like even today for the Wet'suwet'en, it's been over 20 years since we have actually relied on the sockeye because we want those salmon to get to the spawning beds. You know, we have our fisheries program and it's very limited on what we take. The rest must go to the spawning beds. The region that we live in here is just incredible. Uh, some have said that it's one of the final strongholds of salmon. Uh, we don't have dammed rivers here. We have free-flowing rivers, and uh, uh, the other thing is a number of communities, indigenous, non-indigenous, that live in, in and amongst the rivers here and uh, are supported and sustained by salmon. You know, what is the significance to yourself, to the Wet'suwet'en, and to, you know, other people that you know uh, in neighboring nations? What does salmon really mean to everyone here? It's central to us. It is very central. Like, it is our lifeblood. Like we have to look after our waters, we have to look after our spawning grounds, all for the salmon. It is so important. Like all of our stories can relate to a food source or looking after something, and that's what the salmon is for us. They look after us if we look after them. We tend to forget that in this modern age where everything is economics. Like it's part of our spirit, it's who we are. All of the cultures, all of the indigenous people that are along rivers, lakes, oceans, they rely on that. It's central to us because that's who we are, where we come from. You have to think before there were the encroachments that are there now, this is what we relied on. This is what we lived on. This is what we look forward to. That way we had to look after it for the future. Um, I guess in the last you know number of years here, we've obviously seen uh, a bit of a downturn with the number of salmon coming back. You know, What's your sense of the situation now? And, and when you talk to you know, the younger generation, when you talk to uh, other people in your nation, in your, in your family, um, in your house, you know, what is the conversation around salmon about? Um, do you ever feel like you may not be eating salmon or witnessing or experiencing salmon in the future? I have a firm belief that if everybody, and I mean every single person does their part, we can continue to have it. 
But if we continue to have, like, say, governments or industry steering us, well, they look at the bottom line. They don't look at the cumulative impacts that have on salmon. Like we often say that we can't have salmon being a memory. It must continue to be a flavor, which means to have that flavor, you've got to look after it to make sure it's there for the future. I can't imagine talking to the grandchildren or the great-grandchildren of what used to be there when everybody could do their part and make sure it is there. Like currently, COVID, there's less pressure on it because people aren't allowed to be out as much. But we may see an upturn on the cycles, whether it be two or a five-year cycle. We need to see and watch what is happening. And that will prove that if we can actually build it up, it means looking after the environment that the salmon need, the water and the hatchery programs that they have, which are have to be the wild stock themselves. It can't be an entity stock. You've got to have that DNA pure for that salmon to be able to come back and reproduce as it has for thousands of years. So if we all do our part, it won't be a memory. But we have to stand up and say, this is what we have to do. Nemox, you know as well as I do that it's so important to not only uh, talk about these issues, but also celebrate the salmon. Usually in the spring, we would celebrate the release of the smolts or the smolts traveling down from Babine Lake on their way to the ocean to spend their time in the ocean before returning. And then uh, around this time, only in about a week or so, we'll be celebrating and would set the return of the salmon. Tell me a little bit about that that experience describe maybe what that is like um the the feeling you get and the feeling that others in your community get uh when they do start seeing the salmon come back to the rivers well it is within our lifeblood the salmon itself and to celebrate it coming back that means like we're doing our part to make sure that you do come back we celebrate it because it's sacred to us it's our food source we have songs for it we drum we sing we pray to them and even when we do cook up the salmon for the people, and it's to show other people, you know, the willingness to share for something that can be there if we continue to look after it. But for us, the Wet'suwet'en, we have to do it properly. And as I stated earlier, this is why we don't put as much pressure on our sockeye stocks right now as we did in the past because the runs have declined. But we've got to do our part to make sure it's there. And it's proved to the children that, you know, it is there for them, and they, too, when they become adults, will have the responsibility to ensure that those waterways and the salmon itself are there for not only their children, their grandchildren, and great-grandchildren, but also for everybody, if it is done properly. I guess in, in, in your eyes, you know, how, how can we start to do that? How can we start to, you know, sustain, reasonably sustain our, our salmon stocks and ensure that there is something for the next generation? Well, know what your rights are to actually access it, but also to the management part of it. You can't have a few thousand people saying, I'm only going to take one or two, and yet cumulatively, that's where it adds up. If everybody stands up, does their part, realize that this is for the future rather than right now, you can see a difference and a change. Unfortunately, with climate change, that's going to be another aspect to it, but we as humans should be able to do our part to ensure there is something for the future. You know, what do you remember, or what would be a typical uh, year 
in uh, preparing harvesting salmon for you and your family. We talked about but we talked about this once uh, about the stories that are talked about passed down around the smokehouse. So tell me a little bit about the significance of, of the smokehouse and, and having it filled with salmon. Well, we always talk about well the importance of salmon, but we also have responsibilities as house and clan members and as Wet'suwet'en people. We have fishing sites throughout the river. And people are assigned to look after them. It's the traditional names that they carry, and it comes with fishing holes, hunting sites. But to look after that, to ensure that it's there, and to monitor what is there. Never take more than what you actually need. Make sure there is something left there to go and reproduce for yourself in the future. But your responsibility is to always know where you have a right to go. No trespassing. It's a huge law with us. You don't trespass. You just don't go wherever you want to, you have assigned things. And if you look after those sites, right, that's where you will get your salmon from. Then the harvesting of it, bringing it to your smokehouse, the family's talking about who had the names and responsibility of those sites previously, responsibility now, and the responsibility for the future. And that's why salmon is so integral, because it is that story. It is your history. This is how you know who was who, what responsibilities and responsibilities for the future. Namox, maybe describe for us a bit about the Wet'suwet'en territory, the Wet'suwet'en Yinta, and also about Sayu territory and some of your favorite places that you like to go. Well, for the Wet'suwet'en, we have 22,000 square kilometers of land. It's north-central British Columbia. I'm going to say 70 to 80 percent of our watershed goes down towards Eskina, and depending on the year, 20 to 30 percent would go down to the Fraser. So we have a responsibility of where we live to ensure that salmon and clean water flows both to the Fraser as well as to the Skeena River. Like our river, they call it the Maurice, that is one of our bigger rivers for salmon, is actually called Wetsinkwa in our language. Now, Wetsinkwa will join the Skeena at Hazleton and then from Hazleton down to the coast. Our Fraser River, rivers that go down towards Vancouver itself, um, they've been impacted, well, I'm going to say, by Alcan. When they built the dam there, that affected the water flow. They changed the water flow to go north instead of south. But still, we have responsibilities for those salmon to go down to the rivers there and out to the ocean. As for um, territory of the size, I actually have four areas that I look for and look after along with my house fees. And within those, we actually have fishing sites that we have to look for. And we have communal fishing sites on the same wood set, which is in the canyon itself, where each of the clans have fishing holes and responsibilities there because it's one of our harvesting sites. But it isn't like you go at it 24 hours a day, seven days a week. No, you go in there, you take what you need, make sure there's enough to go through the canyon itself and up to the spawning beds in Watsinkwa and the other spawning areas throughout our territory. But again, it all goes down to the responsibility of who we are as house members, as clan members, as with certain people, to ensure that we look after it properly. Like when we get the provincial or federal laws that say, okay, this will happen, let's say, in favor of industry, we have to say, no, we have to look after everything that touches that river because it's a cumulative impacts that really affect the salmon. And everybody must do their part and tell industry and government that, no, this isn't just an economic resource this is for us the culture the people the enjoyment of all 
Nimox, tell me about the Skeena. We see visitors from all over the globe come here to this region for various reasons, but mostly because it still is an intact watershed, and we're the lucky ones that get to live here. But tell me about the Skeena. What is it to you? Clean, beautiful, free, and you could go and drink out of the creeks and rivers. Like, you talked about United Nations. I talked to people there. I've been twice to New York, once in Geneva. And people are astounded that you could go and drink straight from a creek or a river. You know, we've had people come from all over the world come here, do interviews with us over certain subjects. And for us to reach down and drink right out of the river, they're astonished by that because there are very few places on this planet where you could do that. And, you know, as Indigenous people, as residents of where we come from, we've had to work very hard to keep those rivers clean and we need to continue to do that you know it's one of the few places on earth where you could look outside your window you got snow-capped mountains and green beautiful valleys clean water the animals are there yes there are impacts but we need to fight hard to return it to what it was and enjoy what is there it can't be just an economic value if you just put an economic value on it it'll be gone we talked earlier about uh, some of the preparation in uh, harvesting salmon, but Namox, tell me, how do you like your salmon? Oh, any way you can get it from the smokehouse, fresh, boiled, fried, you know, they keep on offering us money to access nothing. Resource that is there, and I don't know how to cook money. I don't know how to boil it. I don't know how to bake it. I don't even know how to fillet it, but I know how to do that with salmon. And that's what I always say. If we have something that is there, don't let them take it away from you. Like, this is who we are. We need to stand up for what is there. And, you know, I've done a fair bit of traveling, and there are very few places on this planet that is pristine in areas as we have. But also, we need to stand up for that. And for the flavor, it's a flavor of life. I guess, Namox, maybe, you know, tell me, Despite all these challenges, um, you know, what's your hope for the future of, of Skeena Salmon? What's your hope for the future of, of the Wet'suwet'en, of you know, other neighboring nations um, in being able to uh, harvest salmon and keep salmon in, in our life, um, you, you know, both non-Indigenous and Indigenous cultures? Well, I'm a rather positive thinking person. You know, we all do our part. Good things will come from it. And the part about the future, will it be there? I believe so. But we must all stand up and do our part as individuals, as people, and it doesn't matter what race you are, know what is there. It would be like, how often will you get to bring a child to stand by a river and see a, a fish go by? And what if you just go to that river and exclude it and there's nothing in it? What have you got to show that child? So I'm positive that we can give good memories to our children. Because even to bring a child there, you're not just teaching them, but you're making memories for the children. When they have that memory, it goes into their heart, and they know that it's there. And they know that their responsibility is not to talk about a memory, but talk about what is there right now. You've been listening to Upstream, a Skeena Wild podcast. Over this first season, we'll speak with those on the ground working every day to ensure a future for Skeena salmon, the people behind the science that are increasing our awareness and understanding of one of the last intact salmon watersheds in the world, 
and what responsible development could look like. We'll also dive into what makes the Skeena such a significant and unique environment and how indigenous nations and local communities are pulling out all the stops to ensure our way of life and salmon have a future here. If you want to hear more, check out SkeenaWild.org or subscribe to this podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you find podcasts. And don't forget, tell your friends. Thanks for listening.